and welcome to the latest episode, the 50th episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi. Congratulations on 50. This one we'll celebrate. We won't celebrate the other 50, like living 50. Yes. Right. My name is Ian Rowe. I'm also a senior (laughs) fellow at AEI. And today, in honor of this special occasion, we have joining us our boss, Robert Doerr. He is the president of the American Enterprise Institute. He's also a mortgage scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He is a, an expert in poverty studies and used to be the head of the poverty studies department. He also used to work for Mike Bloomberg in New York City, overseeing the Human Resources Administration and has lots and lots to say about welfare programs, work programs, child welfare. And so we thought we would have him on today to pick his brain about all sorts of issues affecting children. Welcome, Robert. Thanks for having me, Naomi and Ian. And congratulations on 50 episodes. That's a milestone. (laughs) We can't get to 1,000 until we hit 50. Oh, boy. Yes. (laughs) So, Robert, the first thing we wanted to ask you about, you had an article a few days ago in the Wall Street Journal talking about some poor research that had been cited behind policies to expand the child tax credit. So we wanted to just first ask you about that and then delve into this question of, what policies are actually going to help kids when it comes, especially to kids who are in poverty? Thank you, Naomi. So child tax credits have been around for a while, both in forms of something called the earned income tax credit and also something called the child tax credit. And they are are intended to be a way to support low income, usually working families whose income from earnings isn't sufficient to support the family in a way that's above or safely above the poverty line. So We've done that, but we've always wanted to do it in a way that promoted and encouraged employment because you really need a combination of earnings and support from government programs to help families in the most successful way. Not only do you get the benefit of the earnings, but you also get the benefit that come from work that is beyond just earnings. So that has been the policy of the United States for a long time. And I think it's been basically a good policy, heralded by scholars from both the left and the right. The new child tax credit proposals that are actually is in the in the law now is a post-COVID measure, and as President Biden would like to extend, actually provides the child tax credit benefit to people who don't work at all. And so that work incentive, that desire to help people get into work, has been diminished. And it also had a wonderful feature before that it doesn't have, which is that as you worked more, you got more for a while until you reached a certain point, and then it leveled off and faded out. That was a successful way, again, to promote more work for families. They've changed that. They want to do it as just a flat child allowance and just give people money regardless of where they work. They want to do it on a monthly basis. They are now doing it on a monthly basis. And that may sound nice, but the problem is, is that it discourages people to remain in the labor force and to continue working. Now, that's an issue that can be studied empirically. And the sad part was that an organization did study it, the National Academy of Sciences, and a group of of scholars looked into it. And a couple of years ago, they came out with a report that indicated that this new child allowance, this new child tax credit that goes to people regardless of whether they work, would only have a small impact on the number of people that were in the labor force. And that study from a prestigious organization has been cited. In fact, it's been cited to me. It's been cited to me by people who are in Congress or in the administration. Then along comes two University of Chicago scholars, 
Bruce Meyer, who's affiliated with AI, as well as the University of Chicago, and Kevin Corinth. And they do a look at what the National Academy of Sciences did. And they find that in every other instance, when they were evaluating the impact of these child tax credits, they factored in this discouragement of work effect to see what would happen to the number of people in the labor force, except when they did it for the child allowance that's currently being discussed and is in the law now and the President Biden wants to extend. When they did that, they just dropped that calculation. And so they didn't get an accurate measurement. And yet their report, which used this inaccurate measurement, has been cited. So what my article did was it called to attention, to the extent that I could, this problem in this report and said, look, we have to be careful when we make big pronouncements and use studies that we do it correctly. Now, I'll tell you, this is a risky thing, Naomi and Ian, because, you know, we all are in this business and it's hard work and sometimes people make mistakes. So I try to be understanding about it. And I wouldn't normally be this kind of, you know, nitpicker as much, except that Bruce Meyer, University of Chicago scholar, and his co-author, Kevin Corinth, were so upset about this failure to do the calculation correctly that they wrote a letter to the National Academy of Sciences and asked them to formally make a correction. That's a pretty significant step for academics to do about work that comes out. And I felt that it deserved attention. And so in some respects, the great thing about that op-ed, Naomi, you and I have discussed this before. Maybe I haven't talked about you, Ian, but a good op-ed, a good opinion piece is also really just another form of news reporting. You're bringing to the attention of the reader new facts, new facts that inform their judgment about public policy. And in my opinion, the fact that we had discovered this problem and that we were calling attention to this problem right at a time when this issue is being debated in Congress and, you know, the Senate is going to have to decide and the House whether to support this extension, I thought was worthy of getting into the public debate. And thank you for doing that. You know, when I'm in conversations with people who are proponents of this plan to have the child tax credit with no work requirement, their immediate go-to line is, this will instantaneously reduce child poverty by 50%, period. Then I say, well, but what about the long-term impact of erosion on work? And it's almost silence because they're just looking at specific pieces of data that support their yes, and they're also looking at just the impact of the cash coming in without noticing that the reduction in, in cash that comes from less work. And so if benefits go up, but work and earnings go down, the effect is not going to be 50% or 40% or whatever they say. It's going to be much lower. My view is, is it's an open question about whether this will actually reduce child poverty. They're pretty certain, and it's been a refrain everywhere you look, that this thing will, the least it will do, will reduce child poverty in a significant way. And we found that, well, their certainty was based on a study that was done in a way that was inaccurate. When people talk to me about this question, though, their, their question is, why are we forcing single parents to work at all? Shouldn't they be just taking care of their kids and shouldn't we be paying them to do that? I think that is a better answer. I actually, I'd rather debate that discussion. I'd rather have someone say, we don't care whether they work. My view is, is that for families, that, and this is, comes from my 20-year experience in social services, for families, they're mostly single-parent families, which complicates it, I acknowledge. They are mostly people who have high school education, maybe a little more. My view is that for those families, there is a benefit to having the head of household be in the labor force 
to some extent, and I want to be clear about this work requirements thing, the minimum earnings you have to have to get the child tax credit before, before this change, was $2,500 a year. That's hardly a really tough work requirement, but it's a messaging thing. Yeah. We want there to be some work. We want there to be some effort toward getting earnings. So I think that my own view is that families that are in the circumstances that we're talking about benefit from having the head of household be in the labor force at least some. Mm -hmm. And they don't benefit if they're entirely out of the labor force. If President Biden or the supporters of this legislation were saying, hey, we want to do this so that we can have people get out of work, no more work, I would have that discussion and we could talk about it and the the relative merits of that. But that's not what they're saying. In fact, President Biden just said on Friday or Thursday before he went off to Europe, he gave a speech on why the Build Back Better legislation was so important. I watched it very carefully. I watched it live. And he said, this new thing will change the whole dynamic for working parents. He used the phrase working parents about four times, when in fact, the key ingredient to this new proposal is that it changes the dynamic for non-working parents. Mm -hmm. And so instead of stepping up and acknowledging what he was doing honestly and fighting for that because he thinks that's good, he's misleading the country, in my opinion, by emphasizing the working aspect. And to Mm -hmm. me, that I just am frustrated by that. I've been frustrated by inappropriate uses of language about these issues for a long time. And this is one of those examples. And does it create a perverse incentive to convert working parents to now become non-working parents? Without question. This is a lot of money that comes in a monthly basis. If Listen, I can understand it. You're receiving a check from Washington and all of a sudden working a, a couple extra hours that you used to work may be less attractive and working at all is going to be less attractive. That's a normal thing. The more you have resources provided by government that it does not come with a work expectation, less likely you are to work. I get that. That's going to happen. And what happened with this report was they tried to pretend that wouldn't happen. And the fact is it will. So I wanted to sort of take a step back. I mean, you've obviously been in the field kind of looking at vulnerable families for a long time now. What do you think is the state of kids who are poor kids who are in difficult situations in America. Are we getting better at caring for these populations? Obviously, you oversee at AEI a whole lot of people who look at these sorts of things, everything from education to taxes to child welfare stuff. What is your overall impression? Are you Do you think we're getting better at this or is it getting worse? Well, I don't think you ever want to settle. I think there are a lot of areas where we could do a lot better. I think that from 19, roughly 1995 until pre-COVID, we had done a good job of helping more people get into the labor force and attached to various benefits that made work pay. And I think there have been a lot of studies that the impact on kids, especially at the bottom or especially among racial minorities, was not negative. Their outcomes in school were getting better, not worse. Their involvement with the criminal justice system was not as bad as it was in the early 90s. So we weren't going backwards. I don't know that we've gone as far far forward as I'd like. And I think that there are still families who struggle. And then on top of that, there's a whole new issue that's emerged, which we didn't have when we were really focused on the very poor in the United States. And that is they've gotten above the poverty line. Their resources are a little better. They're above a threshold that we would be worried about. But they're still struggling and they're still not moving up 
safely into the middle class. And I think that we've got a skills development and skills enhancement and education problem there. And then finally, I think, Naomi, you've done some work and Ian, you've done work in other spheres, in two spheres that I'm discouraged by right now. One is in child welfare. I think that we're going backwards in how we help for the kids who are most at risk because we're not focusing on safety for children as much as we're focusing on other issues. And that really troubles me. There's been, it seems to me, a an uptick in the really in child fatalities. And that's bothering me. And we got to do better there. And of course, there, you know, the margin of error is not forgiving. We really got to be better all the time. And then in education, I'm very discouraged about the progress I would have liked to make in helping make our public schools stronger and better for kids who come from low-income communities. And while I think the charter school movement has made some progress and done some great things. And Ian, you've been very involved in that. And I think some aspects of school choice have made it better. And that's also forced some public schools to compete and get better. I think we're not moving as fast on that. I'm discouraged by that. And then the latest, which Ian, you do a lot of writing on, and I admire greatly, is this introduction of some concepts into the curriculum concerning identity politics and classifying people by race in a way that I think is unhealthy for children and bringing a kind of woke, anti-racist ideology into the classroom, especially in K through 12, that's troubling. So I'm worried we're going backwards there. I, I say often, Ian, something that you've taught me, which is if you tell kids, Black kids, Hispanic kids, minority kids, they have no chance in America because America is inherently racist and corrupt and broken, they will lose hope. They will lose a faith and a, and a desire to move up. And That'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I don't like those sorts of things happening in schools. And there's some of that going on that I'd like us to do. I'd like us to reverse. Yeah, it, it is It is an amazing phenomenon. I imagine sitting in a classroom, either you're white or non-white. If you're white, someone says you're an oppressor simply because of your skin color. Or if you're non-white, you're oppressed simply because of your skin color. You've robbed agency from both of those kids, right? You're telling me I my destiny is foretold, and that can be so harmful. I mean, it's a good pivot, Robert, to the other thing that we wanted to talk to you about, which is what's going on with school boards across the country, because ostensibly, the United States has a deliberate, decentralized system where we've got somewhere, I think, close to 14,000 school districts, school boards across the country, locally elected officials, all with this idea that, you know, these local institutions would protect the interests of kids and parents could interact, they could know what's going on. And yet over the last few months, activities of parents expressing interest just on some of the things you talked about have been likened to domestic terrorism. So parents are now having this almost chilling effect of, you know, I don't necessarily like what's going on in my schools. And yet there seems to be people pushing back on parental engagement. So curious to hear your thoughts. Again, Ian, I admire you so much because you're on a school board in a, in a large suburban school district where there's lots of interests and lots of concerns. And it's a very tough job. And it's not a job in which I'm, you're compensated very highly for. And you're up against really strong forces. My wife was also on a school board in upstate New York and, and faced those, some of those forces, the, the yep. teachers union, the organized bureaucracy of the school, the parents. There's a lot, there's a lot going on in that job. And it's a difficult job. When I would cover a school board meeting or a town board meeting back 25, 35 years ago, when I was a young reporter in a community newspaper, one of my favorite 
town supervisors had a habit where every town meeting he would go at the end of the official business, he would go around the whole room, whoever was in the room at the time. And he'd say, well, I haven't heard from you. What do you have to say? And he would look for everybody got a chance to say something. And that could lead to some sometimes silly things being said or maybe not helpful things, but at least everybody was invited to participate in the dialogue. And it's tiring. It takes longer. But what I think has happened is that there's this sort of frustration with democracy or frustration with participation in community activities where people don't want to hear the genuinely felt concerns of people that are a member of that community. And I think shutting that down or discouraging that, even when it's ideas we don't want to hear or aren't right or aren't healthy, is not good. And so, yeah, I'm very concerned about it. I follow this Loudoun County dispute up in Virginia a little bit because I'm closer to it. And I just felt like the people in power were just sort of decided they wanted to not listen anymore to what parents had to say about what was happening in their in their schools. And you got to be a listener if you want to be in any of these jobs and including listening to things that make you uncomfortable or challenge your views. And then you've got to make a decision. So, yeah, I I don't like this discouragement of people to participate in the public process. And it's also bad politics. It just makes people matter. And then they come out in even greater form. Right. Well, that's an interesting question, too. I mean, when you look at the politics of issues around children, do you feel like there's a way kind of to make progress here? Or is everybody just sort of, I mean, is this issue in particular sort of leading to more polarization or people talking past one another? I mean, one question is, does everyone just want something different for their kids? Is it possible for us to, in this current environment, construct a public school system that's going to make everybody or even a critical mass of people happy? Or does everybody want something different out of the system at this point? I think that's a very, very good point, Naomi, which brings us back, actually, to the child tax credit, because there's one... Everything silver, comes back to the child tax comes credit. Back, and I I'm a little obsessed <laughs> by that. There is one silver lining to a more generous child tax credit which I'm not sure Democrats have really realized. And that is that it's a significant amount of money that allows parents to make their own decision about their kids' education and use their extra resources to pay for a faith-based education or an education that's outside of the public school system. And I do worry a little bit that we've all become so divided and so divisive that it is very hard to, in a public school setting, to get the kind of education that some parents might want. And what I I think I believe in is that I want to allow them an avenue out of that so they can make their own choices. I certainly have always been a supporter of school choice and vouchers so that parents can make their own decisions. And as this divisiveness or this unwillingness to listen to parents grows, or another example is the reaction of many school districts to the handling of the COVID crisis, where people felt like, the teachers union concern was, was controlling everything and schools remain closed much longer than they should have. I think that's led to more and more parents saying, well, look, I don't want, I'm done with this. I'll take my savings or I'll take whatever I can, can to take my child somewhere else. And I'm not an education scholar, as you all know, and I follow it closely, but I do, as someone who has raised four children, I'm very sympathetic to the frustration of parents who are have only one choice for their kids. And that one choice isn't really consistent with their values or their beliefs. The U.S. Census Bureau just did a survey they do every couple of years 
where they found that in the prior application of the survey amongst Black families, there was only about 3.3% interest in homeschooling. The most recent survey was 16.1%. Yeah. Massive increase. And I think we're going to find that across lots of different demographic groups. Do you think that school choice writ large, is this the moment? Is this a moment to capitalize on the frustration, do you think? Well, I think it may be. I I was going to mention one other thing about school choice, though, and we have to face up to this, too. And that is that there are parents and communities where given choices that are not that hard to take advantage of. They may be free. Public school choice, for instance, is a part of the school choice movement, too. And those parents will, for some reason, refuse to take advantage of that opportunity or refuse to have their child travel a little bit further to maybe a better offering or more interesting offering. And so I want us also to be conscious that sometimes parents aren't always right. And so that can get frustrating too. But in answer to your question, I think this is a big thing. I saw the, the story in the Times, 50,000 fewer children are going to public schools in New York. Unbelievable. That's Just a gone. huge decline. And you know that's going to lead to people making more choices. So I, I think that's possible. But let's not forget the as Rick Hess has taught us, the vast majority of American school children go to their, their neighborhood public school. Yeah. And I think if we're going to start saying we're not going to work on trying to make those schools better, we may be making a big mistake. And Ian, you are exemplary of that because you've decided to invest in the school district that you that you live in by participating. Yep. Run for school board. That's my Run for school board. That's my <laughs> advice. <laughs> I, I like to think of it as the love the one you're with approach to uh, <laughs> to education policy. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? Our 50th episode. Again, we encourage you to listen to the previous 49. And the next 50. And the next 50. Yes, that too. Which you can get on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So we want to thank again, Robert Doerr, the president of AEI, for joining us today. And please listen again soon. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for having me.